Hi there. It's Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. Uh, joining me on the phone is Sarah Launderville, who is the Executive Director for the Vermont Center for Independent Living. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm uh, so happy to be with you today. Well, this is great. And what I didn't know when I talked to Sarah is that uh, they are celebrating their 45th year of service to Vermonters, with uh, elderly Vermonters and people with disabilities. So congratulations. Thank you so much. We're really excited about this. <laughs> oh, I bet. Are you going to, are you planning anything special or, um, you know, not, not anything super special. We were trying to, you know, I don't know if, um, folks know, but our, our building was flooded in July. We're still trying to really come back. Uh, and, and we have just a lot on our plate with the amount of, um, sort of, you know, feeling of, Vermonters just calling and just really needing a lot of support. So we decided to sort of put like a larger celebration on hold. But we will be, you know, celebrating through social media, getting people excited, maybe sharing some stories in our history. We'll put out right. our newsletter, that sort of thing. That's um, great. But we, that doesn't mean that we're not as excited. Um, it's just a little bit more low-key this year. Well, and I read that you are the only um, center for independent living in Vermont, and you're responsible for the entire state that is, that's, that's quite a, a handful. <laughs> that's incredible. You also have, you have some branches around Vermont. Maybe you could talk a little bit about where they are. Yeah, sure. So we, yeah, we are the only Center for Independent Living in other states. If you're familiar with um, Centers for Independent Living, you might have them in different regions. Um, but we do cover the entire state, um, and we're, we're really excited to do that. We do have branch offices in um, Burlington, um, Rutland. Uh, Bennington and Brattleboro, and then our central office is in Montpelier. Right. Um, although we will be closed, and I'm hoping to reopen that space maybe in summer, but we're that's still sort oh. of forecasting into the future. So most of wow. our staff um, from there are working remotely at this time, and um, but still offering all the services and programs um, without missing a beat. Because <laughs> you are really in Montpelier was a perfect location. I, I didn't yeah. realize you're you were where the the water was. I guess. Uh, oh. I, I thought you missed that when I went by the other day, no, but obviously awful. not. Yeah. Terrible. No, it's awful. Yeah, it was really awful. So you lost everything. I mean, all the all the um, materials and stuff. <laughs> we did. We lost a lot of stuff. We have some things that we're able to to hang on to and, and clean up, but for the most part, we really lost everything. Uh, the water came all the way through our basement and then uh, um, about a foot up. Um, into the main um, area, so oh, I'm sorry. yeah, just a lot of a lot of cleanup um, that had to happen, and is um, the repairs are beginning now, so that's that's good and exciting to see sort of us starting to come back. But that's yeah, it's, it's a long process. Well, and and thank God for your staff because you've got a great staff, yeah. and I'm sure they're they're rising okay. to the occasion and and hanging in there with yeah. you. They really are. You know, I think back to July when, and this was true for a lot of Vermonters, right? But like. I look at our staff and think not only were they dealing with the actual building and, and the stuff that we needed to deal with day to day there, but a lot of them were dealing with their own homes and yeah. their own the crisis around the flood. So to be able to pivot, to move into also identifying and supporting people, we worked really hand in hand with FEMA during that time, meeting daily around issues that were popping up for folks with disabilities right. and trying to identify and, and deal with the system stuff plus individual stuff and so it was a lot, and I, I, yeah, I'm so grateful for the the people that work at VCIL. Their heart is there, and they're 
you know, as you know, you know, they're mostly all of us have disabilities ourselves. So we have quite an understanding around from that lived experience, how to really support people in in those situations. So, yeah, can't say enough about the people that work at these. And I can't imagine that with the flood, I mean, if you have a disability, I mean, that just compounds compounds it all, doesn't it? I mean, it's difficult enough to get around town, um, much less with all the stuff that's on the sidewalk and and uh, everything you've got to maneuver around. I read that you have 80% of your staff and 92% of your board are people with disabilities. That that just yeah. must add so much to what you do because you know from whence you speak. Yeah, definitely. Well, it comes right from sort of the philosophy of independent living centers and how how we were all founded um, and, and it it really speaks to that having the majority of your staff and um, board or people with disabilities really can identify, like, where are those barriers in the community? How do we, you know, overcome or, or kind of deal with the barriers? You know, we always, we think of it in kind of these chunks of, like, it's not it's not the person with a disability that's the issue, right? It's the fact that we have these barriers that are that could be, like, physical barriers that right. maybe there's a ramp in the building or an accessible bathroom, um, you know, to communication barriers that involve, like, not, you know, speaking about the flood, making sure that when there's a public announcement um, from, like, the governor's office or wherever, that there's an American Sign Language interpreter being televised, not just in the room, so that people who are deaf can actually hear the service announcements at the same time as everyone else. So, like, cutting through some of those barriers are really important, and then having people with that lived experience, because they've lived it, they know how they were treated as children, how they're treated as adults, how they can't navigate through, right. you know, the world. And then that helps sort of develop and continue to develop the programming and services that we offer. That's great. Uh, Sarah, do you have a number of the people that you do serve statewide? Um, you, yeah. There must be so many that need your yeah. services. Yeah. You know, I don't have a number off the top of my head. It's a couple thousand people yeah. every year that we're being based with. Um, I will say, though, that through it, it, it depends through our different programs. We have like um, and I know we'll get we'll go through some of those. But, yep. you know, there might be more people served through those programs than other people. But we are um, touching the lives of like people individually. But then there's this broader systems impact that, that we've been doing that hopefully we're touching even more lives and helping people understand sort of, you know, the broader community responsibility right. around disability and that sort of thing. That's okay. We're going to talk about a report a little bit later that you put out. I yeah. read that. It, Wow. Oh. It, I hope everybody oh. reads this report because it really opens your eyes to what's out there. When I worked in Barry City, we put together a affirmative action uh, group. And um, the one thing that, that folks with disabilities with uh, um, wheelchairs were the, just the sidewalks that would, you know, yeah. um, not be even. And the problem they had getting down off of curbs or um, getting mm-hmm. over the bumps in the in the sidewalk, things that we don't even think about. You just walk. Mm-hmm. And here these right. people are out looking for help to try to uh, overcome some of these uh, problems. Yeah. I thought that was a very interesting yeah, that we have to you have to be reminded. And thank goodness there are people like yourself and that say, hey, you know, yeah. pay attention. So you yeah. have I have in front of me a laundry list of services. I don't know if we oh. need to go through every one of them, but maybe I could pick out yeah. um, one. Obviously, vaccination is very important these days and you yeah. provide vaccinations for your for your clients. Yeah. So. 
I'll just um, let you. So, so we don't really refer to people we work with as clients. We refer oh. to folks. Uh, just so, yeah, just so viewers or listeners know that we refer to people as peers because we, as people with disabilities, are peers with other people who have disabilities. Well so. said. Sorry, I was actually going to ask you that because I uh, yeah. different people, you know, refer to, but peers is a good word. I support yeah. that wholly. Go ahead. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, our vaccine services. Oh my gosh, we we. Um, gosh, so much to say about this. Um, program. It really um, grew from we when um, COVID hit and the pandemic came, we hired um, this really amazing advocate, Kate LaRose, and, um, who's our pandemic equity um, coordinator. Um, and then beside her, um, Krista Combs is our long COVID advocate, um, because we saw from the community such a need and um, trying to understand, you know, how do we make sure that people with disabilities who have more medical states that, that make them higher at risk for death and longer-term disability around long COVID. And, you know, the research now is showing that, you know, the more times you get COVID, the more, to, you know, often or the more um, higher rates of long COVID that you could experience. So we were really answering these, these calls um, from folks that were needing more from the community. Um, and unfortunately, from, from our perspective, you know, COVID became incredibly political, right? Like it's like the whole, you know, masking and testing became political in, in a way that was really has been damaging to our community. And so we developed, um, you know, hearing from, from the community that they weren't getting access to vaccines. Huh. We started with that lens around um, COVID vaccines in a, in a, and not only just not access over the last like year, um, the only access was like at pharmacies where, you know, you would have to sort of put yourself at medical risk, you know, to go get a vaccine right. for people who are sick and, and that sort of thing. So um, we worked in partnership with U.S. Aging and um, secured a really a great grant to do in-home vaccinations. Um, and and so um, that has been going on. Um, I can't say enough about the Waterbury Ambulance Service and other services who really stepped up to help us do like um, uh, site-based vaccine, outdoor site-based nice. vaccine yep. services. So just to continue um, being able to offer that. We have pivoted a little bit. Um, the money is, is running out for that particular program, but we're now, um, we just announced yesterday a partnership with the American Society of Consultant Pharmacists, and we're going to be offering home and site-based vaccinations for not only COVID, but for flu, for shingles, um, pneumonia shots, RSV, tetanus shots. Um, so on our on our website, people can find out sort of more on how to register for this, and that's vcil.org. Um, and we have like a little link of all of our vaccine services. I mean, I will I will say that this is not what VCIL was set up to do, right? We don't we don't do vaccine services, but we really saw a need, and, and it was upsetting that we didn't see more of a response from our government to you know, make sure that vaccines were in place for people who wanted um, access to them. So oh. we're, we're hoping that that will shift over the next year, you know, as as things start to change. But, um, yeah, that's been it's been a little bit disappointing, but we're also really excited that we had the opportunity to answer the call and be that's able great. To, to do. Well, yeah. I'm sure it's very much appreciated. And kudos to the pharmacists, too, uh, oh, because uh, standing in those lines is so. <laughs> You know, it's hard, right? Yeah, exactly. exactly. Or getting a car. I know our first shot, Bruce and I, we were in our car, and it was right. um, behind um, uh, Burger King on 302, mm-hmm. so you have to have a car. Um, yeah, us as well. Exactly, exactly. You understand. Right. And, oh, for yeah. sure. 
uh, sorry, we're just kind of going through this laundry list. It goes on forever of all this, uh, the services you provided. But I have to ask you something. When you talk about providing services for the elderly, it, mm. do you, I mean, um, it's probably more, I don't know, self, they need call, they call you because they need help. There, does the age sort of like 65? I mean, how, define elderly now that I'm 80, Sarah. I'll put you on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> Um, we don't have any real definitions around um, uh, elders that, that we work with. And so what I would say is, so as DCIL, we serve with anybody who has a disability. And that could be someone brand new to life all the way to the end of life. Oh, so I love that. There's only one. There's there's two two pro- programs where we probably identify that a little differently. And that's in our Meals on Wheels program yeah. specifically. So folks who are over the age of 60 go and work with um, maybe the Council on Aging System um, as opposed to us. And that's just the way that the money and collaborations work. And then our youth transition work where we're working in the schools, obviously, <laughs> working more right. with young, younger adults. But, yeah, it's um, just anybody. I always think of it as, you know, the definition of disability um, under the Americans with Disabilities Act talks about having um, one or more major life um, activities oh, right. that's uh, substantially limited. And so elders, people with chronic health conditions, they, people with mental health issues, sometimes don't see themselves in the category of disability, but we do. We see that as it's all-encompassing. It's a, it's a movement that's really bringing together um, a lot of people that have these um, different, quote, impairments and working together to make sure that, you know, the world is accessible and inclusive for them. Now, you mentioned mental health. Um, are some of your peers dealing with mental health? I I. Got the impression when I when I read your uh, website that it was maybe more physical disabilities, but oh. it doesn't sound like that at all. No, Shame on me. All. I'm so glad for that feedback too, because it makes me want to update our website. Then, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I did. I I, I was going to ask you that, and I, I when I read all this, I said it, it must be more physical disabilities, but because mental disability can be just as debilitating, if not more so. Exactly. Yeah. So we, um, and it could be because when we were founded um, back in 1979, um, it really was um, for folks who have physical disabilities. That shifted really fast in right. the 80s. Um, so we had some great leaders who really understood that things needed to be more across disability. And then as federal money came through, it was really centers for independent living are set up to serve folks in a cross disability capacity. Um, and I myself have a psychiatric disability, and and so we t- I try to talk about that as much as possible because huh. I think that some people don't see themselves in in those positions. But yeah, our numbers show that we really serve people with all different. Oh. Um, I'm glad to hear that because that is certainly a problem these days, and uh, it just seems to be growing. Uh, and it's mm-hmm. something that you don't see necessarily. So, um, you know, if you have a physical disability, if you're in a wheelchair or something, you see that and, and respond accordingly. Um, but sometimes with a mental disability, it's, um, it's harder for some, for somebody else to, to, um, appreciate that and to recognize it. Really? So. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and people are so, don't always want to come out of the woodwork about it either because people stigmatize that so much and, and discriminate against people with mental health and disabilities or make it sound like, you know, like it's not a big deal. And so I, I appreciate when people are able to talk more openly about mental health um, challenges and um, issues because it's all part of the human experience, just like disability is, right? Like across right. the board, it's all part of the human experience. Exactly. Um, so um, 
I think COVID must have really impacted uh, the number of uh, folks that you served, didn't didn't it? Yeah. Yeah. What we it really it really was an um, interesting time. We we were very blessed to be able to receive some CARES Act money from the federal government, and so we pivoted um, to make sure that we were really connecting with people, trying to offer. Um, computers and ways that people could be connected socially, um, but also be collect- connected to like healthcare, um, teleservices, that sort of thing. And so um, we did some some work of getting equipment out to people and hoping that we were able to also um, train people on how to use that equipment because it's not super easy to understand Zoom if you haven't done it before, that sort of thing. Um, but it also allowed us this opportunity to work with more people, I think, than we had um, in the past, because instead of maybe our peer counselor driving from one home to another in a region, um, which could take a long time, we're able to connect by computer and right. phone and have those conversations and, and help people um, get those supportive services. It obviously doesn't work for everybody, but I think that having that um, had allowed us to do that a little bit more. Yeah. Um, but now, you know, now we're seeing some of that the outlines of, of what COVID has done to the community. And, and we're finding that more and more people are becoming disabled yeah. um, because on COVID. And so we're definitely seeing an uptick in people that we're serving um, in, in that regard. And, and really there's still, the research is so new, right? So we're not going to know for um, more and more years right. how this really has affected us fully. Um, yeah. But, but Unfortunately, we're seeing it um, in a way that's that's pretty devastating. Well, and kudos to your staff, because as you're talking about what you had to do during COVID, you were also dealing with a flooded out (laughs) office space. So and I'm sure some of them had problems at home as well. So, oh, my gosh. Yeah. Kudos to them. Hugs all around. Um, So you have uh, something called the Deaf Independence Program, which um, if there is a bucket list item that I'm going to do before I depart is learn sign language. I think it's one of the most beautiful ways to communicate. And uh, what does your Deaf Independence Program include? Yeah. So we have an amazing advocate, Val Hughes, um, who is culturally deaf herself and works with um, other um, deaf and hard of hearing and late deafened or deafblind individuals in Vermont. Um, so it's a pretty big list of folks that um, she's working with. And it's um, working peer-to-peer, you know, working with somebody who is deaf and wants to work on particular independent living goals and helping them through those goals um, using her own lived experience and then and then helping um, with providing resources and that sort of thing. So she does a lot of that. And then she also does tons of systems advocacy work, you know, and mentioned the stuff about, you know, making sure that there's an ASL interpreter, um, you know, right. at Governor Press conferences, for instance. You know, we, we've over the years done so much systems advocacy and, and joined team with um, the state around their program. Um, and trying to get more and more services. There's a there's a program we're we're really trying to fight for right now. It's called the SSP program for folks who are deaf and blind, and it's a supportive um, program. So people have a support person when they're out in the community, right. helping you know know how to grocery not know how, but like helping them grocery shop and you know go from place to place and that sort of thing. And it's wonderful. It's not an ongoing funded program, but we're really trying to gain some traction around it because that's what it's all about, right? Like finding where those issues are, and then helping increase accessibility for everyone in our community. So um, there are 30 people currently on that program in Vermont, um, and and I could just see it expanding, which would be really cool. Oh, that's awesome. Good for you. I had two um, individuals in the Department of Labor 
um, that were deaf and assigned, obviously. And yes. we brought somebody in to t- give us a six, oh, I forget how, but it was a couple of weeks long course. I just oh. wanted to be able to say, hello, how are you? Uh, yes. you know, and yes. just recognize the, that I appreciate the work that they were doing and being yes. part of uh, the department. And, um, I think, that that was really an amazing experience, and so I have it on my bucket list um, to to <laughs> to learn. It's it you can't find um um so many places. I keep looking, um, other than college, but that's a that's a right. serious commitment. Um, yeah, which there uh, which there's some online stuff, and I and I know that there are some people who are deaf in the community who teach. I can I'll try and find you some resources. Really? Oh, seriously? Yeah. Let me yeah. know, and I'll share it with our listeners because. I, I just think it, and I saw a video, I don't mean to get off the topic, a video of deaf poetry, the most mm-hmm. beautiful experience watching that video because it was your feelings, not the words necessarily, you, you used your feelings to, to uh, support the, the poetry. And oh, yeah. it was, it was just yeah. incredible. Anyway, let me move on here. You talked about Meals on Wheels and, um, the next one on my list was, uh, Sue Williams Freedom Fund. And could you talk about Sue Williams? Because I did a little research on, on her. Yeah. yeah Sue Williams was an amazing advocate here in Vermont and, worked um, to create environments where people could live independently. And and I should say, I keep using this word independent. You know, some people are a little confused about what that means. We're not saying that people need to live on their own and be completely independent. We're just saying that, you know, people should be able to be able to make their own choices and live life the way they want to live as opposed to someone sort of imposing um, stuff on them only because they have a disability. Um, but Sue was connected to, to VCIL. Her family has been connected to VCIL over the years. And so we, um, years ago, prior to, to me being at VCIL, um, named this program after her where um, people could um, receive up to $1,500 worth of services and equipment to maintain independence. So um, it's really around assistive technology mainly. But it, it can be expanded as long as it's something connected to your disability um, that that would help you increase independence. So we pay, um, we pay for um, partial on, on dentures, um, wheelchairs, scooters, you know, things that aren't um, covered by other sources like insurance and that sort of thing. Um, but it but it can be um, also sort of outside the box. We've um, you know some people their disability um, if somebody has like multiple sclerosis for example and they might need an air conditioner in their home to help maintain good breathing, um, we might be able to pay for something like that. So. Um, it's a great program. We, it's, it's, you know, we, we receive a grant of $35,000 each year. The money, um, our fiscal year starts in October, and I can tell you right now the money is almost gone for this year. But those <laughs> the need. Very fast. The need is huge, um, yep. but it's, yeah, and it's a really great I'm, – I'm really proud of this program because it's a little bit um, outside of other traditional programs, you know, and it, and it just gives – somebody just this little piece that creates a whole different life for them, right? You get dentures and you're able to eat again. I mean, the fact that our systems don't aren't able to help pay for dentures is something incredible to me on a different level, and we fight for that systems change. But, you know, these are things that change people's lives. It's not just, you know, oh, I have an air conditioner. It's like, oh, I can breathe in the house and play with my kids now, you know, That's things great. like that. So it's a big deal. That's really cool. Um, I have Ray from Berlin on uh, the air. Ray, go ahead. Yeah, hi there. Say, uh, do you remember uh, an employee named Chris Jones? It was he worked. 
He worked with Project Independence. He was uh, in my class. He got hit with a drunk driver head-on, paralyzed from the waist down. Oh. And, I, you know, I, I lost right. Next thing you knew, he was working for Project Independence. He had a van rigged up so that he could get into it with his his uh, wheelchair and and then do work for his view, yeah. I think. And do you remember yeah. him in your... Yeah. Uh, oh, my gosh, Ray. That's, uh, thank you. It's like so it's so timely in terms of us celebrating this 45th anniversary. So when I started, I started in 1997 and Chris was still around, but he was so instrumental in all of the good work of VCIL and really, um, yeah, exactly um, what you said. But I was um, when I started working, I was in, um, helped with some of the attendant stuff and assistant work um, because I was just sort of getting back into the workforce myself. And um, Chris was someone I worked with really closely around all that. I really appreciate you bringing him up. Well, it's been a while. He'd be my age, about eighty threes or eighty four oh. somewhere in there. So, but he was yeah. never. He was. He had a never give up spirit. Grace. He yeah. tried and worked hard and overcome mm-hmm. difficulties with and worked for you. I'm not sure if you guys helped him get the, his van rigged up or how he'd come mm-hmm. about it, but he was back yeah. to work and. Uh, he was a, mm-hmm. certainly a, 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 an instrument of uh, inspiring to a lot of people. How what a wonderful yeah. story! Thank you for calling, Ray. That was I didn't know the gentleman, but how inspiring! Mm-hmm. That's yeah. really great. Um, I well, of course, the only person I know outside, I know a couple of your staff <laughs> just from around town, but everybody knew is Rosemary Miller, right? Uh, yeah. I mean, she's been <laughs> retired for a while now. I think a bit now. Yeah, yeah, but honest to God, I always remember Rosie. Just what a always smiling, always happy, and great memory on May on uh, names. When it may have been a while that I'd see her, and she'd know me immediately, and yeah. uh, she's wonderful. Yep, she's she's great, and she she at this point is longest serving staff member of UCIL. She worked um, for thirty one years for UCIL as a receptionist. She was the voice you know that you heard when you came through that door and um, met with immediately and. Um, yeah, she's, she's crackerjack and she's still, she's still around in the community. Oh yeah, she's um, on Facebook too, so that's where we talk a lot. Uh, she's always posting on Facebook, that's so cool. So, um, Sarah, I want to talk about your report and it's called Our Time Is Now. And you've got a bunch of uh, different sections. I read, I read it the other day. Um, and the first, maybe you could talk a little bit. The first section was Vermont. We have a problem. Um, <laughs> could you talk about that problem and and uh, yeah. creating awareness about that problem? Yeah, I'm so excited that you read and, and saw this report on our website. We um, first published in um, 2021, and in fact, we're trying to work on a, a new one um, in partnership with Higher Ability, formerly Vogue Rehab, um, in Vermont to sort of highlight um, some additional issues and bring up some of the statistics right now. But yeah, this is a, this is a, a nice project in partnership with the Developmental Disability Council, Higher Ability, um, the Division for the Blind and Visually Impaired and the Statewide Independent Living Council. And yeah, we were like, there's a whole section of um, how work and working can really enhance our lives, right? And this is true for people with disabilities and without disabilities. But there's this workforce shortage in our state that we're talking about continuously. And we think that, you know, really focusing on making sure that work environments are accessible and available and that maybe people's attitudes start to change around people with disabilities, that 
there are like 44,000 working age people with disabilities in our state. And so, so we started with this, we have a problem because there's, there's this, you know, issue where the workforce is, is shrinking and, um, but that there are issues that, that it's not as easy as sometimes as just jumping into work, right? Like there are issues, um, for folks with disabilities around not only things I've mentioned already, but also benefit clips where, you know, you might lose your Medicaid, which is super important if you can't work enough hours to then get um, health insurance at a job. So there, so it's not an easy fix overall. And we highlight in this report some of those issues. Um, but that's, yeah, that's the first part of it was really talking about. We just wanted to highlight that there are lots of people with disabilities that want to work and can work and Maybe we need to shift the conversation yeah. around what that looks like. And well, and, I, and sometimes it just means an adjustment or two, correct? I yeah. mean, it, it's yeah. not, it may cost the employer a little time and money, but the benefit of getting a, a, a worker who works hard and is glad to be working, um, yeah. would, would make up the difference. I, I tell this story all, I've told this before. I was down at a funeral in Tarrytown one time and, uh, I sat opposite somebody I, I didn't know. She was a woman, um, maybe in her fifties, but she had a young girl who was clearly disabled. And mm-hmm. Sarah, you would have, uh, how I didn't lose my, cool the, the way she was talking about we we did away with here in vermont what's the mm. what are those places called yes thank okay. you well she her her daughter she wanted her to go back there because um she wanted to, her to to be working and i'm thinking no that's not working um yeah. and i said yeah. i said you know vermont i'm thinking how we really, as as much as we may have more work to do, we are, I think, light years ahead of many other states with with uh, helping and supporting those with disabilities. Uh, because listening to her, I I just had all I could do to keep my head yeah. down and keep my mouth closed, which is hard for me. But yeah. I was very appreciative when I left there of Vermont and mm-hmm. um, and our support. Um, and I yeah. think it's just a matter of making people aware and they'll respond um, because yeah. why not work? I mean, it's these folks and I'm hoping, I'm assuming that re, that employers are appreciating the fact that there are people out there who want to work, who maybe a little tweaking of, of the workspace would uh, get them there. So yeah. you, you do have a section in this report called challenges and barriers remain. And I'm, I'm sure they do. Um, what can you explain a little bit about the barriers and uh, is it more yeah. uh, people's awareness or actual physical mm-hmm. barriers yeah a little bit of all of it mm. probably i would say that so so when i think of some of the barriers that remain um some of them are things that need to be fixed at the federal level of government within our benefit system so that people can get back to you know get into the workplace and, and things are leap years beyond when, when even I started in 97. When I came off of disability benefits, there wasn't as much structure that helped sort of um, have a, a safety net for me to be able to return to work um, as there is today. But there are still these benefit cliffs that really make it difficult for people to make that leap, like I talked about. And a lot of people really rely on in-need insurance, um, right, like, like non-disabled people and um, having that and um, equitable pay, right? So, right. so some of the jobs, you know, entry-level jobs just might not allow somebody to be able to make that leap. And so, there, so, so there's some structural issues around that that are still a serious barrier that um, that whole benefit cliff, it really discourages 
work um, for folks. But yeah, there's also there's also just uh, access issues, right? Like, um, you know, there's if a new business opens and it's just not physically accessible, which you wouldn't imagine in 2024. But there are lots of places that open um, startup businesses that really want to just try and make a go of it, but they're renting a space that has a set of stairs and somebody with a disability may or may not be able to get in and, and work there. Um, and so shifting this, this thought and narrative around businesses and employers really taking on that responsibility, making sure that they're following the guidelines of the Americans with Disabilities Act, and it, and it then allows for people to be able to, to work. Um, and then there's, then there's some, like, just I think it comes down to people being unaware or yeah. scared or, you know, or downright discriminatory around disability. And so – seeing somebody come through the door who has a disability and maybe just what, you know, maybe checking your own assumptions around what that means, you know, and I think sometimes people are just afraid to hire people with disabilities because they don't know um, and they don't know where they can call and ask. And, you know, VCIL is one of those places where you can call as an employer um, and, and just ask, you know, questions that might feel inappropriate in, or is inappropriate in an interview um, with someone, but then you can come over here and just talk it through right. um, and maybe gain some more insight. Hireability in Vermont, um, the formerly Voc Rehab, is another place to do that that work. And so I think that those are some of some of the things that you know that we see as well um, around some of those issues around it overall. Um, and then I would say like having having some real thoughts and understanding around jobs that are out there and how can we be promoting environments that are fitting with 2024. You know, if, if somebody, you know, um, needs to be able to work from home, could that be an option for a job and start to think a little outside the box of what, what this might look like for somebody, um, you know, and be flexible and open to those things because I think that you can gain a lot more um, success and, you know, uh, excitement around, you know, just a more diverse workplace overall. I worked uh, years ago uh, back in Tarrytown. There was a company there that I worked for, and they made a commitment to hire people with disabilities. Mm-hmm. So there weren't any stairs. There were ramps. There were, I mean, mm-hmm. the whole place was geared towards individuals with disability. And yeah. if you were a new hire like I was, they, the HR people would sit down with you and talk to you about the the commitment the company made. And mm-hmm. um and would tell you things like when to when to offer help, when not to mm. offer help, and what things to say, things not to say. And it was it was a great atmosphere, and I loved it. Um, that's that's it, such a great insight, Pat, because it it talks about that attitudinal shift too. Like yep. you know, you can you can bring in a bunch of people with disabilities, but if your coworkers are jerks to you, yeah, right, exactly. You know, they, you know, then you're going to probably leave. And so I love that, you know, having a commitment right from the top and, and really helping and understanding around that is super important. Well, the owner had uh, a disabled child and um, mm-hmm. understood. Uh, well, she wasn't yeah. a child by the time I got there, but uh, okay. understood growing up and, and the challenges that they face and, and stupid people. Um, and <laughs> so they made that commitment. And do do employers ask you to come in and mm-hmm. talk to their employees that uh, – because um, yeah. to me, it's mm-hmm. what do you say? And you don't want to offend yeah. Sure. Yeah. So, so the way I have a training that that's coming up with uh, with one of our um, credit unions in the state, oh, um, cool. asking us to do um, information around 
language around environment, but I I also always look at it from, you know, usually people will come to us and say, can you tell us how to talk to people with disabilities, right? And so we start with some, you know, basic conversations around, around that. Um, and that, you know, people with disabilities are humans and right, <laughs> they have right. a language that they want to hear. And, and there are some, you know, maybe some best practices around disability that we kind of get people up to par on. But then it's so much more than that, right? Like, how is the built environment? You know, are you putting a chair in the middle of a walkway that somebody who's blind is going to trip over? So we talk about built environment and the environment around you. And then we talk about attitudes and that sort of thing. But mainly we also talk and try to not just, we're not just teaching like customer service bills. We're talking about policies and procedures. Like if you don't have good, what you're talking about with your experience, if you don't have good policies around how does a person who's coming into the workplace understand how they can ask for a reasonable accommodation, right at interview. You know, if you don't have those processes in place, then people are going to feel like they're are going to be shut out or discriminated against. And so you want to, really look at all the parts of your system um, around that. But yeah, we do, we definitely do um, trainings and we provide technical assistance on the Americans with Disabilities Act as well to businesses and um, help people sort of look around their, their business and just see, you know, is this going to be accessible to someone and usable? Because there's the law and then there's like usability that sometimes don't completely mess up together. So you don't want to just do the basic minimum. You want to make sure that people really are included in your space. Sarah, you talk about what Vermont's doing and and what needs to be done, and then the last uh, last chapter or whatever of the report is called the timeline of legal progress. Which uh, mm. so you, it gives you the history of of where we how we got to where we are now. But what else needs to be done? And um, are you up at our legislature at all, working with them? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I I'd like to be there more than I am, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I love I. I I just want to say a couple of a couple of things. One one thing I remembered because um, Ray called in is that there is a picture of Chris Jones in that report, and he has like a camera. So if Ray is listening and wants to access that on our website, he can see a picture of Chris nice. um, in there. Um, yeah, and and Julie, the Vermont um, Public Assets Institute are the folks that did did this work. And and Julie, I can't say enough about just the the layout and the wonderful work on this. But it does give a great history yep. of sort of where we've come from in terms of a timeline of laws. Um, and because there's a lot of stuff, and it talks also about, you know, what you talked about um, with shelter workshops going away and, and a little bit about how we did that in Vermont. And Brian Day really was instrumental as well as lots of, lots of people were instrumental in making that shift. Um, and, and just starting to say that we really want something better and different. And so, so there are tweaks that, that always need to be made. We we spend we think that there is some movement at the federal government to look at sheltered workshops. And while you know Vermont has done away with that, we we have been um, helpful I think within Congress to be able to say look at the success that people in Vermont have had right. um, around this to be able to push it on a national level and, and do away with things that are harmful and um, not working for folks with disabilities. So that's that's a big part of it. The other, the other piece of it that, that is really important to us is around youth transition, like getting to and talking to students when they're 14. Um, and there, that was a shift. You know, you'll see in the timeline, there was a Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act that passed um, that really shifted the way that money was spent in states on serving youth with disabilities and making sure that by age 14, youth were having access and conversations around what employment could look like for them. Um, whereas in the past, 
They might, you know, a lot of kids with disabilities have been left out of different types of classes. They're left out of sex education classes. They're left out of classes around, you know, career access and that sort of thing. And that's not the case now. Um, and, it, and at BCIL, we have a, an amazing person who, um, Steph Akor, who goes out and does um, trainings. And there are other disability um, advocates and trainers throughout the state in different departments of state government that go out and work with youth, teach around self-advocacy skills, have conversations around, you know, how to make that shift from school to either direct to work or to college um, and start having those conversations early so that we can really, you know, enhance um, people knowing that they can work. You know, when I when I was, you know, going through my experiences and living in a group home, work wasn't the number one conversation that, that was there. It was how do we get you on Social Security benefits? And while that was important because basic needs need to be met and I needed housing and I needed benefits, work should have been a conversation alongside that. So when I was ready and able to do that, I could feel it confident um, because our, our benefit system of Social Security makes you feel so worthless, like you can't ever do anything ever, ever again. And there needs to be conversations at the same time. And we're not going to change how, I mean, we've been trying for years to change how Social Security works, um, but we're not going to change that overnight. So I think those conversations need to happen side by side so that we can really encourage folks to, to have both. You know, you, uh, thank you for that discussion. That was very interesting about Social Security. And mm-hmm. while you were talking, I'm thinking housing. I mean, it oh, must be very oh. difficult if you have a disability and and need certain yeah. things in, in a home to make it livable. I mean, we have enough trouble with housing, period, in Vermont. Oh, my God, yeah. And, and I, I know that I listened to a discussion they had the other night, a group that was getting together about housing, and somebody did bring up the issue of disabilities and making sure that there were mm-hmm. some apartments, at least, that could accommodate people with disabilities because mm-hmm. th- they may want to be on their own, which is a very good thing. And and uh, yeah. they can't if the, if the housing is not... Uh, or cost them a fortune to to redesign it and get it back to where they can right. live there. So I just yeah. thought of that. That's a big problem, isn't it? Oh, my God, it's huge. Yeah, yeah. we have a home access program at BCIL where we provide modifications um, to homes. But, yeah, going in after the fact is way more expensive yeah. than just building accessible or usable right from the beginning. And so, you know, if I had my magic wand, every home would be accessible right from right. the beginning because you never know when disability is going to happen, right? So – and – on top of that, like, if, you know, if my house is inaccessible, I can't invite my friends over to come and hang out with me if they have a disability. And exactly. so it just shuts out people completely. I think of, you know, we have a mutual friend, um, Kim Ray, who, um, she, she's an amazing person here in the state of Vermont. And she and, um, a couple other advocates, Ash Brittenham, Jesse Butterfield, oh. Adam Wexler, they just submitted comments to HUD around this, this very issue, you know, how, People with complex medical conditions should have um, the ability for healthcare, like personal attendants, CNAs, to be able to live on the premises so that you can get ready in the morning and then go and do whatever their day is going to bring to them. Um, instead of, you know, we have this, this shift that needs to happen within the state. And lots of people are starting or people that we know are starting to end back up in nursing homes that years ago wouldn't have ended up in nursing homes, but we have a shortage of personal attendance services and we have systems that don't allow for people to be able to have that support. You know, when we talked about Chris Jones earlier, it's a really good example of that. You know, you have people who have those needs right from the get-go, and if we don't we don't get that figured out, more and more people are going to end up back in nursing homes, and that's a tragedy of, of our system. Wow, interesting. You mentioned Kim yeah. Brittenham? 
Yeah. Yes, we know. We know Kim. Uh, she called um, uh, a friend of mine has a has a, a traumatic brain injury, and I was mm-hmm. talking to her on the phone. And Kim called to say hi, and she is very involved. And we really appreciate all the work that Kim does for sure, and everybody that's oh involved God. with yeah. uh, your programs. So I just we only have a two minutes left, I think. But okay. I wanted speaking of Rosemary Miller. There's an award you give out. I love this. Oh my God. The Rosemary Miller Dining for All Award, which recognizes, yeah. I'm assuming, restaurants that, that yeah. can accommodate people with disabilities. So Yep. So so we try to do this annually and it also gets us a little bit of a lunchtime with Rosie, which is pretty <laughs> fun um, when she's able to do it. But we've highlighted businesses across the state. Um people can check it out on our website, yep. you know, how to make nominations. Um, but yeah, we go, we go and we look at, you know, they're really from the community. People who <laughs> tell us that there's a really good restaurant that's accessible. Um, you know, the Three Penny Tap Room in Montpelier yep. was one of our award winners because they did a whole redesign and made sure the bathroom is accessible and there's a ramp. And, but we also look at, you know, can you see the menu? You know, <clears throat> are there, are there alternative formats, um, for menus and that sort of thing? And how are your, Wait staff um, treating people with disabilities. That's so there's great. lots of you know interconnections to yep. that. Yeah. Sarah, I hear the music, and I just want to okay. uh, <laughs> yell out really quickly. They have two other awards: Youth Leadership Award and Ally of Accessibility Award. So check out the website; you'll find all kinds of wonderful information. Forty-five years of serving Vermonters, the elderly, and those with disabilities. Sarah Launderville, thank you for all of your work that you do uh, for our community. Take care. Thank Thank you you all. See you next Thursday. This is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV.